So we're going to look in just a few minutes as we've been continuing this fall at our look at the Beatitudes. We're going to look in just a few minutes uh, at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, as I told uh, the earlier uh, service, that uh, you'll have plenty of opportunities in the next couple of weeks uh, to be urged to be grateful uh, in preparation for Thanksgiving. And you should take those seriously and one of the things you should be thankful for today is that uh, if you have hair, you should be grateful for that uh, because um, I really, I think it would offend the soul of my mom if I preached with a hat on, but it did make me think, you know, wow, if I was Episcopal or something like that, I could wear one of those pointy hats and uh, uh, keep my head warm. This morning, but uh, as it is, it is what it is, right? So, um, yeah. Um, so, in, in light of that, uh, before I read the text, uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll see what God has for us today. Lord, uh, as we come to you today, uh, we are reminded as we see the uh, stunning uh, fall colors around us, as we feel the crispness of the air. Uh, uh, Lord, I'm just grateful for fall. I'm grateful that the seasons change, and I'm even more grateful that you never do, that your faithfulness, your mercy is always new, always fresh, uh, always more than what we need, uh, and that your determination to love, save, and re uh, uh, sanctify your people never wavers. Seasons come, seasons go. We come and we go, but you're the constant, never failing, never changing in your care for us. Lord, that makes us glad today. We're grateful for that. And so as we turn now to think about this characteristic uh, that is so near and dear to you, the characteristic of peacemaking, I pray that you would bless us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, uh, text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens uh, behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is uh, uh, so hard to come by. Uh, one of the things that we no I note about this is that when you hear the words uh, that I read uh, often about peace, when we come across those words in the scripture, we, the way we tend to interpret those words is, is that peace means no one is bothering me, uh, life is convenient and relatively comfortable. Um, <clears throat> what God offers us when he says to us that we are his sons as we make peace in the world is something far richer and deeper. It's always the way God works, right? He, we think this is what we want, and yet God brings us something so much better. Um, peace is uh, very hard to come by in the world, almost impossible. I spoke, I spent a tiny bit of time this week with someone who uh, recently has been in Afghanistan, and then more recently in Iraq. And I asked him, you know, tell me about, I know what you did in Afghanistan, I know what that was like, but tell me 
what you, uh, what you did in Iraq and why were you there. While most of us in America were distracted by... Uh, there was an election in Iraq, and uh, this peacekeeper told me, yeah, we, we go there because sometimes they blow each other up with their elections. And so we go to keep the peace with a gun. And so we had the opportunity to talk briefly where I was able to say to him, you know, um, you can't keep a peace that has not been made. You can't keep peace that has not first been wrought uh, for us by God. There are many ways to know that there are things that are wrong with this world. Suffering, sickness, certainly death. But one of the ways we know that the world does not function the way in which it was created is because of conflict, because of war, because of broken relationship and the absence of peace. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the peaceful garden, the first evidence we see of their sin is them hiding in shame from their creator, lamely sewing together some fig leaves to cover their nakedness. But the next thing is conflict, enmity, strife. The woman that you gave me, God, she gave me of this fruit to eat. And soon after we see that happen in the garden there, the very next thing that we see is one brother killing another brother because of envy. We know that uh, our world is full of conflict. And we know that our world is full of enmity and anger and bitterness and broken relationships. The hard thing about that is, is we like, we fight even about our fights, don't we? There's a a school of thought uh, that's uh, present today among us uh, that the primary conflict and the primary area of a lack of peace among people, and in fact, the primary conflict in the universe, in the world, is between the oppressed and the oppressor. And I want to be clear. From the very beginning, the powerful have oppressed the weak. That's self-evident. It just is. Whether it's based on race, whether it's based on class, whether it's based on economics, it happens. And, and, and you have to be blind not to see that. But I'm here to tell you, that is not the primary conflict in the world today. And in fact, and I, I know I run the risk of offending here, but, you know, that's what you pay me to do. <laughs> um, 
the primary conflict today from which the conflict between the oppressed and the oppressor stems is the conflict between men and women and their maker. Because we are at enmity with God, because we are in rebellion against the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who is for us, all our other conflicts, all our other oppressions, all our other uh, lack of peace flows from that. Adam and Eve were at each other's throats. Cain and Abel were at each other's throats because they were at God's throat. And so the message that we have today as peacemakers stems not from the kind of peace that we force because we won and you lost. The kind of peace that, that Jesus is talking about here today doesn't, doesn't come from that. The peace that we talk about today comes from the fact that Jesus Christ himself is our peace, and he is our peace because as our God, he, by the blood of his cross, has made peace with God. And from that peace with God, from that atoning sacrifice, flows our ability our freedom, and our joy to make peace with other people. Now, here's, here's the thing that is uh, so important for us uh, to understand about that and, and to unpack about that this morning is that as we think about that and as we come, come to grips with that, um, the very fact <clears throat> that Jesus has done this for us, something that we could never do, that our attempts at making peace outside of the work of Jesus Christ and outside of first coming to grips with the fact that all peace, all resolution of conflict, all of those things come in the kingdom of God, come because God has done this in Christ. And that is what sets us free then to experience peace with God. And as we experience peace with God, then to be peacemakers with one another. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this text today. Because one of the things that we have to understand before we dig in here too much this morning is, you know, the, the fact is Jesus is doing something radical in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Remember, remember, as Jesus stands there on that, sits there on that mountain and delivers this sermon, What's happening in the world? Well, we will read in the Gospels about Archelaus, the governor who kills so many thousands of Jewish people, of Pilate, who kills faithful worshipers as they offer their sacrifices. If while Jesus was delivering the Sermon on the Mount, a Roman soldier had walked up and said to him, you must carry my baggage to the barracks. Jesus would have had to do that under pain of death. Any one of those people would have had to do that. If Jesus wanted to be popular, he could have said, yes, blessed are the peacemakers and we will bring peace at the tip of a sword. There were plenty of people in that day and age 
even among his disciples who believed that. Or he could have said, we will bring peace by accommodating the oppressors and do whatever we can to make them happy so that they leave us alone so we can pursue comfort and profit. There were plenty of people who thought that. Rather, Jesus does something different. He says, I am here to bring the kingdom of God, which overturns false alliances at false peace and overturns what has been often called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that was only the peace because if you weren't peaceable, they killed you. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, when you hear people say, you know, this is what peace is, uh, be very careful that what peace, that what they interpret as peace is, if you step out of line, we kill you. And so everyone's peaceful in that uh, circumstance because otherwise there is no peace. Now what Jesus does is something completely different. He strides into the world full of death and anger and envy and bitterness and brokenness and first atones for our sins on the cross. The cross is grace. The cross is mercy. The cross is power. The cross is also justice. Our gospel, the good news that we proclaim, and the work that God has done on the cross does not undo the justice of God. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. So in all of our talk about grace and mercy, and we need to wallow in that grace and mercy, we must also recognize the truth that the justice of God is not compromised in his achievement of peace. Sin is not buried. It is atoned for. Your sin, your brokenness, your conflict, your envy, your bitterness, your grudges nailed Jesus to the cross. And he overcame that for us. And so as he says these revolutionary words there on the mountain that day, it is something that we have to come to grips with because what, what he says there is, is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. What does that mean? Well, let's look. Why in the world would anybody be interested in making peace when you're in an existential crisis, right? And don't many of us think we are in an existential crisis, right? You, when you're in an existential crisis, what do you do? You fight, right? Fight or flight, right? You, 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 when, when you're in a situation where you think it is absolutely impossible for me to survive, what are you going to do? You're going to fight. Um, I, I, as many of you know, I recently was in South Dakota and... Um, I didn't do laundry in South Dakota, and so I had a lot of laundry. A lot of I spent a lot of time outside and had a lot of dirty clothes. And so, um, uh, 
we've added this thing in our laundry room where we have this pole that sticks across where Marty hangs up the nasty stuff, the running clothes, the, the nasty clothes. And at 1.30 uh, the other night, it fell. Next, and, and it's right by the door that comes into the house. And I thought, someone is breaking into our house. I won't tell you what my plan was uh, and how I was going to deal with that. And, uh, uh, but I did lay there tight like this for about 15 minutes waiting if I could hear it because I thought if I hear anything else, I'm going to take steps to make peace. And so, uh, <laughs> no, actually, that is not what I was thinking. But uh, um, so, so the fact is, why in the world would we do that? And, and that is part of our problem because we, we have missed the priority that Jesus, that the kingdom of God, that our God, the, the God of peace, places on peace. Now, uh, one of the things I, I came across, you know, that's part of our problem as, as the peacemakers in, in a culture that is at war with itself, instead of cultivating an appetite to learn from others, we gorged on spiritual junk food that told us we were already right. And so if in your approach and in your thought about making peace, you're like, you know what, I, I, I'm already right, and, and, and because I'm right and you're wrong, there can never be peace. The problem with that is uh, we have a truncated and a powerless and impotent gospel if that's what we think and if that's the way we uh, uh, approach the world. Because I believe in accuracy, I believe in truth, and as we'll see, there are limits to peacemaking, but the fact of the matter is for most of us and most of the conflicts that we get engaged and involved in, being right is overrated. I've been right many times, most of the time in my marriage. <laughs> and I've been right on the wrong side of the door many times in my marriage. So what are we to make of this when Jesus says that blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God? Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a son of God. John, John writes in his first, uh, in, in the gospel in first, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, that is, received Jesus, who believed in his name, that's what to receive him means, he gave the right to become children of God, right? So our right to be children of God, our right to belong to him stems from, comes from the fact that Jesus has done this for us. And when we receive him, when we believe him, when we rest upon his life, his death, his resurrection, we're in the family. God takes those who are rebellious outside of the family and he brings us in. We also read in Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, let me be clear about this. You know, uh, one of the things that you, you, sometimes we read about this and we're like, we're all sons of God. What if you're a woman? What if you're a woman? How can you be a son of God? In the first century, what Paul is doing here when he says you're sons of God to a church probably of more women than men, he's saying something countercultural, something revolutionary, because in that culture, 
uh, women did not receive an inheritance, and particularly women did not uh, uh, have the same rights as their brothers. And what Paul is saying is, in Christ, that's overturned. In Christ, you're all sons. In fact, not only are you sons, but you're firstborn sons, right? You, you are just like your older brother, Jesus Christ, and you receive the same inheritance, the same rights that he does. So it's a, it's a completely countercultural set, setting all of us free uh, to, uh, to experience uh, exactly what it means to belong to our Father in heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is, as a child of God, as a son of God, as someone who is in the family, you begin to look like your father. When I was in the first grade, I met the first kid I'd ever met in my life who was adopted. Never, at, at six years old, he was in my first grade class. Miss Holbrook's first grade class, Huntersville Elementary School. Miss Holbrook was 110. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. <laughs> She was probably 40, but she seemed like the oldest lady on the planet to me at the time. And she sat, uh, this boy next to me who was, who was adopted. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'd never heard of that before. I didn't know anything about it. I just thought, well, I wish I was adopted. So I started telling everybody, hey, you know what? I'm adopted. <laughs> yeah, I... You know, my, my, my parents loved me so much, they went and chose me in a window. You know, they saw me in there and they picked me because they thought, you know, what a, what a cute little boy. And so one day I'm eating my bologna sandwich in the cafeteria and a friend, Jimmy Fortner, is sitting across the table from me. And Jimmy Fortner looks at me as he's chewing his bologna sandwich and says, I told my dad you said you were adopted and he said you're a liar. <laughs> we're direct in our elementary school. And I said, how can you say that? He, says, you, he said, there's no way he's adopted. He looks just like his dad. Look just like your dad. Because you see, that's the point that Jesus is making here, right? When he says that, that we are to be peacemakers, the fact is that we resemble our Father because our God is a God of peace. And if you don't believe that, let me just share a few verses with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me be clear with you about that. You know, the God of peace, the God who makes peace, the God who dies to make peace, never makes peace with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and neither should you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, that essential to the very character of God is peace. He is called the God of peace. And so when we are uh, about the business of making peace in a world ripped apart by conflict, we look like God. We look like our Father. People will see and know and understand the nature of God by, the, by, by virtue of the way we lead our lives seeking to make peace where there's only conflict, right? So one of the things that you have to see about this is that, that God not only is peace in and of himself, he makes peace. He takes, he comes all the way to those with whom he has a broken relationship. He comes all the way to those who are rebelling against him. He comes all the way to his very enemies to make peace. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us then the message of, re of reconciliation. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, that's the thing that, that we have to see about this. Making peace is hard. It's costly. It cost Jesus his very life to make peace between us and our God because we were in enmity and rebellion against him. Next slide. So what you have to understand is the gospel is a story of how God brings about a just and lasting peace between his rebellious people leading to a just and lasting peace between individuals, families, communities, and nations. And real quickly, let me just give you another angle on this, if just to further strengthen the connection between the God of peace and peacemaking, right? And our job as peacemakers. Paul says in Galatians 4, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. If you are in Christ today, then you are a son of God. And if you are a son of God, what Paul tells us is you are indwelled. The very spirit, the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of God is alive in you. And if the spirit of God, if you have the spirit of God in you, then you will produce fruit. And one of those fruit is peace that you will be about the business of making peace. Now, let's get down to some practical things, because that's what you're waiting for. You want me to give you a caveat, because of that person you're nursing a grudge against, you don't, you're off the hook, you don't have to be a peacemaker with them. I know, I've, I've been thinking about this all week. <laughs> I, I know exactly what, what this is like, right? Well, Jesus goes on in a few more verses to tell us how to make peace. He says here in chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, you've heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So how do you make peace? Well, first of all, step one, here you go. I'm going to tell you what to do now. Step one, first of all, children of God take the first step. That is, we are so dissatisfied with the fact that our God is not glorified by a broken relationship, that his name and his honor is so much at stake, and it may appear that the cross has no power to reconcile this relationship, so I am willing because I am a son of God, because I have the spirit of God in me, because Jesus has given me his life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness, has lavished these gifts on me, I am free now to take the first step towards my enemy. I move towards him first. I move towards him first. I am willing to go to the person with whom I have a grudge, to go to the person who has hurt me, in an effort to justly, faithfully, lovingly, mercifully bring about peace. So we're willing to take that first step. Next slide. Second, we build bridges. Now, why is it, why, what's the difference between taking the first step and we build bridges? Because peacemaking ultimately is a two-way street. 
And so what I need to be able to do in my peacemaking is when I take that first step, I want to take it in such a way that I make it so that my enemy can move towards me, right? The bridge is a two-way street here. And how do I do that? I lay my weapons down. I'm defenseless. Not really. Because Jesus is my defender. But with Jesus as my defender, I lay my weapons down. The promise of the scriptures is, is that the kingdom of God is a place where swords are beat into plowshares. Where lion lays down with lamb. Where baby plays over the den of the snake. And so to do that, I beat my words, my attitudes into peacemaking tools. And, and, and so I signal to my enemy, I lay my weapons down. That's dangerous, isn't it? This person I talked to about uh, peacemaking and peacekeeping told me about stopping someone with a live grenade from getting on an airplane in the airport in Afghanistan. And he said, can you imagine what would have happened if we hadn't stopped that guy? You see, we lay our weapons down, we become defenseless, and we trust our Savior to be our defender. Boy, it's hard. So hard. So challenging. And thirdly, we make it easy for our enemies to move toward us. We signal to our enemies that we want to make peace. We signal to our enemies that we want to sit down and we want to be in fellowship with one another and, and that we're willing, we're willing to die to ourselves to do that. Now, let me be clear. Uh, there's a key practical verse and a consideration here, and that's this. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably at all. That's it's an interesting verse, and that's a good verse, right? So what that means is, uh, so far as it depends on you, like I said, it's a bridge, it's a two-way street. And so there are times and there are places where it will be impossible to you live at peace with someone. That does happen, sadly. There, there is no doubt about that. So what is the limit of peacemaking? There is limits. Peacemaking is not an infinite, universal thing. And, and Jesus is not saying he, to us here today, wherever there is strife, wherever there is conflict, that the thing that the kingdom of God brings to that is, is that we, we just lay down. Sometimes we do that. But there are times and there are places where we do not do that. And here it is. Jesus is going to go on in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he is going to tell us that we are to be blessed when we're persecuted. When you're persecuted, you're, and he's going to say you're being persecuted for his sake, Right? for his truth, for his gospel, right? You don't make peace with that. You don't remove that persecution. You don't remove that conflict by compromising 
about his character, his gospel, and his truth. We, may be, we, we need to be willing to compromise. We need to be willing to lay down our very lives for our enemies. But we do not ever lay down the honor of the cross, the honor of our Savior, the honor of our God, the glory of our God, the grace and the mercy and the truth of our God to make peace. We do not make peace with a lie. We make peace with people. But we do not make peace with our enemy, the devil. We do not make peace with the world that wars against us. We do not make peace with our flesh. However, however, for most of us, in most cases, most of the time, our conflicts and our lack of peace have nothing to do with the nature of the truth of the gospel and everything to do with the fact that you hurt my feelings. <laughs> or you, you, uh, you dissed me or you dissed someone I love or I just don't agree with you. And so it takes... It, literally, it takes the Spirit of God in us to be able to, to energize us, to change us, to move us, to have the peace with God that says, I can rest on that even as I enter into this two-way bridge of trying to figure out how to love my enemy and how to be at peace with them. We're going to eat the Lord's Supper. Heaven really is a, a, a party, a feast of reconciliation, a love fest, a love feast, a, peace, a, a, a feast celebrating the peace that God has wrought for us in Jesus Christ. And before I read the words of institution, what I want you to see and what I want you to understand today is that what we celebrate in this meal is the fact that our God takes enemies and makes them sons and makes them sit at his table in fellowship with him. That's what Jesus has done. Hear these words of institution. Then, the, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Uh, let's use this confession of sin that's printed in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me to uh, confess our sins together this morning. Heavenly Father, you have prepared your salvation in the presence of all peoples. Your Son reconciled us to God through the peacemaking work of the cross. Now give us to die to our sin and repentance 
so we, we may live as one with you and with one another. We have not trusted your good news to be good. We have not availed ourselves of your nearness. We have refused the peace of Christ. We have hoped for little from you. We have nursed our hostilities, and the very thoughts of our hearts are revealed in the light of your great mercy toward us. Forgive our unbelief and renew us by your Holy Spirit, that we might rejoice that you have adopted us as sons, that we may once more find the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be our greatest joy. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.